All right, let's go ahead and begin our Bible study this morning in 2 Kings chapter 16 and verse 15. We really put down the tent stakes in verse 14 and 15 over the last few weeks, and I'm glad we did. I've sure learned a lot in my study. And while you're turning there, I've, I found something in my Bible carrier few weeks ago. I didn't remember that it was there. And this is, it was a handwritten note, looked like it was in somebody's diary. And I wondered how it got there. It had my name in it. And I showed it to Brother Fulton and he said, that's Miss Addie. That was her. She wrote a note. And I don't know if Alice gave this to me or who did. Somebody gave this to me a long time ago. Uh, And of course, Miss Addie passed away. But She talked in here, I won't read it because it's too long, but she talked in here about how she was trying to get the preaching on her iPad and talked about Brother Shepherd preaching and about uh, some other things with the church. And that was what was most important to her in that nursing home is making sure that she got to listen to the lessons that are being taught here and the Wednesday night and Sunday morning. So if you ever wonder what kind of things encourage a teacher of the Bible, that does right there. And as long as I'm breathing, that'll stay in my Bible carrier. I won't ever forget this. And from time to time, I'll read it just to get encouragement. I don't walk around discouraged, but this sure does help. All right, hopefully you're in 2 Kings chapter 16 and verse 15. Let me read the verse again, and then we'll continue looking at the truths in it. And King Ahaz commanded Uriah the priest, saying, Upon the great altar, burn the morning burnt offering and the evening meat offering and the king's burnt sacrifice and his meat offering with the burnt offering of all the people of the land and their meat offering and their drink offerings and sprinkle upon it all the blood of the burnt offering and all the blood of the sacrifice And the brazen altar shall be for me to inquire by. So you had two altars. The great altar, which was the one from Damascus. The one that didn't belong. And then the brazen altar. And rather than putting enmity between the brazen altar and the altar of Damascus, Ahaz replaced the brazen altar with the new super altar. And Uriah the priest accepted the king's request to do this rather than rebuking him. And Uriah gave in to what is known as a felt need. How many of you have ever heard that when it comes to churches, a felt need? Okay, well, you'll, you'll know it when you hear about it. You'll say, oh yeah, I've heard about churches doing that. Maybe you've even been in one that did that. A felt need. That's a problem in our world today. Let me give you an idea of what that sounds like from a a pastor's point of view. There's a pastor, and he's a modern pastor, and here's what he wrote. He said, each week we think through needs in the congregation and preach a message to meet those needs, end of quote. Now, although that may sound great on its face, It assumes that people know what their spiritual needs are in the first place. 
And most of the time, people don't. Now suppose someone told that pastor, why, we want you to preach on the topic of depression. And another one said, well, I'd like you to teach on cancer. And maybe someone else said, I want you to teach us how to be successful in business. Now, although those needs are very significant to the people who are asking for them, they take a man-centered approach to preaching. And our approach to preaching is God-centered, and that preaching is going to address every need that man has, every problem, whether it be depression or cancer or financial issues, it's going to address them. And they're addressed either specifically or they're addressed by principles that are found in the Bible. Now, what if nobody in that church, that church that has a pastor who preaches on the needs that people feel like they have, what if nobody in that church ever said, Pastor, I want you to teach on salvation I want you to teach on grace and judgment or on the creation of the world. Then in such a church, those things would never be taught because that pastor would say, well, my my people never did say they wanted to hear me teach on that. So I just never taught it. Now, that's not fair, is it, to those people? And when we teach the whole Bible, we don't miss any of the doctrines because they're all in there. That's where they come from. We don't develop a doctrine and then go to the Bible and say, okay, we're going to use the Bible to support the doctrine. We get our doctrines from the Bible, and that's the way it ought to be. We teach on things that are priorities in God's eyes. I want you to be thinking about Uriah the priest and his relationship with Ahaz the king, who should have been subject to Uriah when it came to spiritual things, but it was the other way around. And what Ahaz was essentially asking Uriah to do is to make room for a new doctrine and ignore the old one. Ahaz had a felt need. He felt the need to have a new altar in the house of the Lord. And a pastor who gives in to the felt needs of his congregation is normally afraid that he's going to lose people if he doesn't. So there's not a healthy relationship between the pastor and the people. Now imagine if someone came to our church only on Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday, as it said, once a year. And if that person walked in and then at the end of the message, when we were in the middle of Hosea, not in the middle of the resurrection necessarily, at least not a chapter on the resurrection, And that person said, oh, I thought you were going to preach an Easter message. Well, that person came in here with a felt need, and that is why by my calendar it's Easter Sunday, so that pastor up there better be preaching on on Easter. I want to hear an Easter message. (laughs) Or what if someone finds time in their hectic schedule to come to church on December 25th and says, why didn't you preach about Jesus in the manger today? Listen, the observation of and the festivities that surround the Easter and the Christmas holidays are man-made. I'm just going to get that out there. They are. 
And you may say, well, we have a lot of fun around our Christmas tree. That's fine. I'm not criticizing you. Or we, we feel like we're supposed to do this or supposed to do that on, on those days. That's, that's not where I'm coming from. We're coming from what does the Bible say? Because the truth of the birth of Jesus is in the Bible. The resurrection of Jesus is in the Bible. Those are Bible truths. And they're not man-made. They're holy doctrines. In fact, if you come to this church very often or you tune in online, you'll see that we teach on them frequently throughout the year. If it's the middle of July and we're teaching on the birth of Christ, that ought not be strange to you if you're a Bible student. Because that may be where we are in the book of Matthew. We may be in the first few chapters where the birth of Christ was on this wise, as the Bible says. And if that's where we are in July, we're going to teach it. And we're not going to say, well, you know, let's hold off on this one until December. About the fourth week of December, we'll teach on it. That's not how we roll around here. And we're not going to. So we're not going to cater to the felt needs of people who come to church once or twice a year we're going to preach whatever truth we're on on that day, and we're going to do it all year long. In fact, if those people would faithfully attend Sunday school or church, as we call it church, it's Sunday school and then the 11 o'clock worship service, and tune in or show up on Wednesday nights, they'd know more about the birth of Jesus than they could ever learn on a Christmas morning message. They'd understand the significance of the resurrection of Jesus more than if they'd listened to the average once-a-year Easter sermon. And the Bible doesn't tell us to select our text according to what man-made holiday the Lord's Day falls on. So if you've ever wondered why we had, uh, we had resurrection Sunday service, how come Brother Andy stayed in 2 Kings, how come Brother... Fulton stayed in the book of Hosea because that's where we were. <laughs> that's where we were at the time. <laughs> and uh, the Bible does tell us about our preaching to preach the word, to be instant in season, out of season, to rebuke, reprove, to exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. And it doesn't give us a schedule on which to preach certain topics that man feels are important based upon man-made standards. So by God's grace, that's the standard to which we adhere at this church and hope that we always will. Now, who do you think knows our needs better than we do? Well, the Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 6, verses 7 through 8. Matthew 6, verses 7 through 8. And Jesus said this, But when ye pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. Be not ye therefore like unto them. Listen to this. For your Father knoweth what things ye have need of before ye ask him. Who knows your needs better than anyone else? God does. And he knows what they are before you even ask them. I watch... Well, I'll give you an example here. My youngest granddaughter is nine months old. Did I mention I have grandchildren? I have, haven't I? She's nine months old, and she can't speak yet, or at least in a language that is intelligible to me. She makes a lot of sounds, and she takes a good run at it. 
But did you know that her mother, my middle daughter, knows exactly what my little granddaughter needs? Even though my granddaughter can't verbalize it, she can't tell her. And when my girls were little, I knew what they needed simply by the way they contorted their little faces or the way they cried or the way their eyes would start drooping. I knew what they needed. But God knows our needs better than we do. In fact, he knew my granddaughter's needs before she was ever born. And he knew our needs before we were ever born. So if he knows what we have need of, then he also has the supply for those needs, and he always has. That supply has always been there. If Uriah would have said, Ahaz, (laughs) what you need is not what you think you need. You don't need this new altar. What you need is what God says you need. And a strong pastor will take will steer somebody away from those felt needs to the needs that God says they have. And you know they're different. What we think we need, if you say, well, I need to get me a four-wheel drive pickup. No, you want one, but you don't need one. Well, you don't understand I have to drive through some rough terrain, right? Well, you may need it to successfully navigate that rough terrain, but in the big picture, you don't actually need one. They're nice to have, and I have one. But I don't need it. Not in God's perspective. I watch people who are troubled about the problems of life. They read after online counselors and influencers. They read books and articles, and some even go to counselors. And however, most of those people have never opened their Bible to find out what the cause of their problem is and what the remedy is for it. Ahaz had a problem. He thought that the brazen altar wasn't sufficient for his spiritual needs. So he found another altar. He didn't consider that he might be the problem. And that's what the Bible does. It often shows us that we are the problem, not the problem itself. The problem's not the problem we are. And when we see that we're the problem, then it affects the way that we see the problem, doesn't it? It totally changes it. Had Ahaz gone to God's Word, he would have learned what made him find God's altar to be insufficient for his felt needs. In Exodus chapter 32, verses 7 through 9, Exodus 32, 7 through 9, now these were words that were spoken and written down before Ahaz was ever born. So he had access to them. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go get thee down, for thy people which thou broughtest out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them, They have made them a molten calf, and have worshipped it, and have sacrificed thereunto, and said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which have brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said unto Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. 
the answer to why Ahaz would quickly turn out of the way and serve at another altar was that he was stiff-necked. If being stiff-necked is what caused the children of Israel to make a golden calf and to worship it and sacrifice it, sacrifice to it, then being stiff-necked is what caused Ahaz to do the same thing on another altar. Isn't that amazing how the Bible had the answer for his dilemma and all Uriah had to do is say the prophet said, Moses said, Moses wrote this, King, and if you do this, you're being stiff-necked. So turn from that, that new altar back to the brazen altar. That's repentance. That's what Ahaz needed to hear. He didn't need to hear someone say, oh, you're right. I'll help you do that. Sounds like a great idea. I have a dear friend who has been struggling with understanding some issues concerning prayer. And one of those issues was about how to know if God was answering his prayer when it came to a person going through a financial crisis. He wanted to know, how do you, how do you know when your prayer is being answered? And I don't know if my friend is actually going through a financial crisis or not, but he gave that as an example. So I addressed his question as though he were going through what he called a financial crisis. And the first thing I told him was that a financial crisis is a matter of perspective when it comes to, to the way God sees it. From a human perspective, the definition of a financial crisis changes from person to person. It just depends on who you ask and where they are financially, doesn't it? But it's really a matter of perspective. And I told my friend, God has already given you the answer to that prayer. And I showed him one of the places where it was. I quoted 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 8, where Paul wrote, And having food and raiment, let us therewith be content. So the Apostle Paul taught that a person should be content with food and clothing. So if you use the Bible perspective given in that verse, as I told my friend, as long as you have food and clothing, you're not in a financial crisis. Now, that hits like a hammer, doesn't it? Because we think, well, now, Brother Andy, you don't understand. I'm in a, I'm in a lot of debt. Well, there's a reason for that, too, most of the time, and it's in the Scriptures. But I, I need to get a new this and a new that. Well, you may, but you're not in a financial crisis, not according to the Bible. Did you have a meal today? Yeah. And it looks to me like you're wearing clothes, awfully similar to them anyway. You're not in a financial crisis. What does that do when you accept that? It changes your perspective. It's not a crisis anymore. It may be an inconvenience. It may be an undesirable situation. I don't want you to think, well, then I should be comfortable being in debt. No, you shouldn't. You shouldn't be comfortable being in debt, but you're not in a crisis. He may not have 
some or all of the things that people equate with happiness or success or prosperity or even financial security. How about that? The answer to the question about how to pray about a financial crisis and what God's answer to that prayer request is are already given in the scriptures. They're already in there. If you have food and clothing, you're fine. You're not in a financial crisis. Swallow that one down. It may be bitter in the tummy for a little bit, but it, it'll sure take the pressure off. I think it does. Jesus said, The foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. Now, do you think Jesus thought he was having a financial crisis? Of course not. And I gave my friend yet another scripture about how people normally end up having financial problems. This is not people who have a catastrophe. This is the normal, run-of-the-mill financial problem which most people have in this world. Proverbs 10, verses 4 through 5 Proverbs 10, verses 4 through 5. He becometh poor that dealeth with a slack hand. Slack means both deceitful and lazy. But the hand of the diligent maketh rich. He that gathereth in the summer is a wise son, but he that sleepeth in harvest is a son that causeth shame. Now that's not the answer most people want to hear, is it? But it's the truth. It's what God said through Solomon. So what the Bible does not do to us or to Ahaz is it does not cater to our felt needs, in this case about a person's finances. It doesn't tell the person having financial problems that they should go get a handout or swindle someone out of money, and the Bible definitely says thou shalt not steal. It tells them that they have dealt with a slack hand. And they have not gathered in the summer. That's the metaphor here. In, in those days, that was the literal truth. They didn't gather in the summer during the harvest. They've not been wise with their money. We're not talking about those who are unable to care for themselves, unable to work for a living. Because the Bible also tells us how to help those people. Now church, with all this, I want to encourage you. Because it's easy to do. I want to encourage you to quit seeking worldly solutions and blaming worldly circumstances for any kind of trouble you have, whether it's financial or not. Most of the troubles that we have are self-inflicted, aren't they? And therefore, when we look back to ourselves to fix those problems, that is the definition of insanity. Looking to the person who caused the problem to fix the problem. So if I go to a church and I have a problem, I don't, I don't understand why A, B, or C is happening in my life. And then I go to a pastor who won't go to the Bible and say, here, I want you to, to teach me about how to fix this problem. And because that so-called pastor doesn't take me straight to the Bible, then he's given me a man-centered approach to my problem. And man is the cause of the problem. And God's word has the answers, and that's a great relief to me. Ahaz cared nothing about what God's answers were to his situation. Because he had a dilemma. He had two altars, and he had to decide which one he was going to sacrifice on. 
Now imagine if Uriah would have told Ahaz, the Bible says you don't need another altar, king. In fact, the bloody old altar, that used altar, that's enough and you need to be content with it. Just like you're content with the food and clothing you have, you need to be content with that old altar and repent of your evil desires and your actions. If he'd have said that, Uriah may have lost his freedom, may have gone to prison. He may have even lost his life. Imagine if the felt needs preachers of today told their congregation, you be content with having food and clothing. Well, that'd wipe all the prosperity gospel preachers off the TV, wouldn't it? I don't watch them anyway. But they're on there. I know they are. As long as people will keep sending them their hard-earned money and believe in their false promises, they're not going to go away. Imagine if those felt needs preachers told those congregations, y'all need to quit being lazy. You need to quit being foolish with your money. Many of them would probably go away and never come back. They'd say, that's not what I wanted to hear. But that's what they needed to hear. All of the answers to the things we pray for and all of the answers to the dilemmas of life are found in God's Word, either specifically or in principle. So if you say, well, God's Word doesn't tell me whether to buy this car, well, you need to back up a little bit. It's not going to tell you whether to buy a car or not, which car to buy. But there are sound financial principles in the Bible. First of all, are you content? If you're not content, nothing else, I can't tell you anything else financially that's going to help you because it's going to come from the same Bible that says you need to learn to be content with what you have. What did Jesus say about the poor? He said, you always have the poor with you. They're always going to be here. He didn't say, well, I'm going to make, I'm going to make poverty go away. I'm going to end poverty. Jesus knows why we have poverty. Jesus knows why we have crime. There's one word, and it's sin. Sin entered into the world and death by sin. Everything we do and everything we put our hands on has a shelf life. It's going to be over with someday. It's going to rot away, waste away, go away, burn up, whatever it may be. Revelation 22, verse 20. The last words, it says, He which testifieth these things saith, Surely I come quickly. Now that's Jesus. Amen. And John wrote, Even so, come Lord Jesus. Jesus told John he would come quickly. John prayed for Jesus to do so. And we know, therefore, that John's prayer is going to be answered because Jesus is going to come quickly. And when he does, John can say, there's the answer to the prayer. I already knew it was going to happen because God said it. And there it is. The answer was there before the prayer was made because God needed, knew that Jesus or that John needed Jesus to come quickly, just like we do. And he knew it before John ever knew. And concerning this altar of Damascus, Let's look back in the text in verse 15, there at the end, and it says, Sprinkle upon it all the blood of the burnt offering and all the blood of the sacrifice. That's what Ahaz told Uriah to do on this new altar, is to sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on it. 
Now, this is yet another of God's commandments that Ahaz twisted up. He twisted it into his own unholy doctrine. He knew that there should be sprinkling of blood, but he wanted it done his way. And he is supposing that sprinkling the blood of an animal on an unholy altar is going to accomplish something good on his behalf and perhaps on the people's behalf because their offerings were also made on that altar. In 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 1 through 2, 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 1 through 2, we learn about the sprinkling of the blood. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Peter was writing to the elect, those are the saved, that's you, that's me, those who are born again by faith in Jesus Christ. And we are, God foreknew all of those in Jesus Christ. And we are set apart. We are sanctified. We're made holy by the Spirit of God when we are born again. And the obedience that's mentioned in that verse is not you doing works. It is you believing on the work that was already done. And that was Jesus' blood being sprinkled, not on a brazen altar, but on that cross. He shed his blood on that cross. He fulfilled all of that sprinkling of blood that was done on those Old Testament altars. He was the once and for all sacrifice that all of those sacrifices pointed to. It was the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus represented by the blood of those Old Testament animals that satisfied the wrath of God on our behalf. We know the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. But Jesus sacrificed himself once and for all, and that sacrifice takes away our sin so that no more sacrifice is necessary or efficacious after that or before that, only Jesus's. Now, that's important in considering what King Ahaz and Uriah did on this unholy altar. It was critical in the Old Testament, that every sacrifice, every ordinance be done according to the pattern that was shown to Moses in the mountain when God gave him those commands. It was important that it be done exactly according to that pattern so that people would understand the gospel and what the sprinkling of the blood of Christ would mean for them. When those Old Testament sacrifices and ordinances were not done according to the pattern God showed in the mount, then those errors could not point to Jesus' sacrifice, but it pointed away from it. It said, essentially, when when Paul warned the Corinthians about those who preached another Jesus, you remember that? I don't think that there was necessarily some other person named Jesus who he was talking about. Some other man actually named Jesus, although there were Jesus, bar Jesus, you 
you read about that man in the New Testament. But rather there were preachers that were preaching another way besides the one Jesus commanded. And trying to come to the Father, trying to be accepted by God through some other person or some other way, was, metaphorically speaking, trying to go through another Jesus, through another way to be saved. John fourteen six, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. So there is a specific way. It's just as specific as the Old Testament sacrifices were to be. God gave Moses the pattern in the mountain. He said, do it this way and do it only this way. And Jesus gave us the fulfillment of that pattern right here. He said, I'm the way. I'm the only way to come to the Father. So the Jesus whom the apostles preached was that Jesus, that same Jesus, and that same way that he said one must be accepted by God. So to preach another Jesus is to preach another way. To preach that someone could come to the Father besides the way. And that's what sprinkling blood on the altar of Damascus represented. Another way, another Jesus. That's what Uriah did. He accepted that there was another way to make God happy for man to be accepted by God. And boy, he was dead wrong, wasn't he? And look at the last few words of verse 15 where Ahaz said, now he turns his attention to the brazen altar. He said, and the brazen altar shall be for me to inquire by. That's going to be his own little toy, his own little trinket. That's how he's going to teach it. That altar was to be used to sacrifice on behalf of the people. That morning and evening sacrifice, that thing should have been constantly filled with blood and ashes, and the ashes taken away, and more blood, and more burning, and more ashes taken away. Non-stop until Jesus died on that cross. Now he has, has moved that brazen altar out of his way because it was in his way. And then he selfishly appoints that brazen altar for another purpose. And this was the only place in the Bible that I could find where anyone used the brazen altar to inquire by. That word inquire and some of the derivatives of that word were used to tell us when one was inquiring at the word of the Lord. In other words, he was seeking or searching at the word of the Lord. Or perhaps they inquired of another person. The Ark of the Covenant was also used to inquire by in some passages, I believe, in, in Samuel's time. But the word inquire means to seek or to search. So Ahaz determined that he would use the brazen altar, not to offer his burnt offerings as the Lord commanded, but to inquire or to seek. And in doing that, he kept anyone else from using the brazen altar. Do you see the significance of that? If that brazen altar represents where the animals that were sacrificed, if that represents the cross where Jesus was sacrificed, and rather than pointing people to that brazen altar, Ahaz pointed them to another altar, he preached another Jesus, didn't he? 
And he held on to that altar, not so that he could be the only one saved, but so that he could use it to do what he thought was right, to inquire by. And in doing so, he kept others from it. Now, we're not told whether he would inquire of the Lord through that altar or whether he would inquire of the gods of Syria through that altar. He just said, that altar shall be for me to inquire by. In either case, it's inappropriately used. What was the only acceptable use of the brazen altar? Offerings, sacrifices. That was it. And using the altar to inquire of the Lord is to ignore the commandments God had already given them. And this brings us back to that same theme. People say, I just want to know what God's will is. Have you looked at God's word about your issue? If you haven't, you are not, not, not going to find God's will. You're not. You're not going to accidentally stumble into it because it's contrary to what the flesh would do. It doesn't make sense in the eyes of those who ignore the Bible. It doesn't make sense in the minds of the atheist to the unbeliever. And we have God's word, and by it, we inquire of the Lord. So do you know how, and now let's just assume for a moment that Ahaz was going to inquire of the Lord by the brazen altar. He doesn't say he would. He just said, I will inquire by it. But let's just assume for a minute Ahaz said, I'll inquire of the Lord by the brazen altar. What did Ahaz also have? He had God's word, didn't he? He had what Moses wrote. He had what the prophets wrote. That was enough. If he had the Torah, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, he had enough to be saved, to live the Christian life, to please God, to lead others toward God, to point to the Lord Jesus Christ and his sacrifice that would come years later. He had enough. In fact, if he had Genesis, he had enough. And he should have inquired at the word of the Lord that was available to him. But he said, I'm going to inquire of the altar. You know, today we don't listen for a voice or look for a vision. We're not to kiss a metal cross or put our hand on some kind of statue or certainly not bow down to it. How do we inquire of the Lord? We read his word and we believe it. And that's what Ahaz and Uriah both should have done. If just one of them had done that, we wouldn't have the problems we're reading about. Now look at verse 16. Thus did Uriah. Now what that means is everything that Ahaz said to do, he did it. Thus did Uriah the priest according to all that King Ahaz commanded. Uriah was more obedient to the king than he was to God. He did everything the king said to do. Did he do everything God said to do? Well, we know he didn't. He was more concerned about being obedient to the king than he was about being obedient to God. He was a terrible priest. And his cowardice was costly to himself, to his king, and to the children of Israel under Ahaz's rule. Jesus spoke to the Pharisees. And they wish he hadn't, but he sure did. Matthew chapter, or excuse me, Mark chapter 7 and verse 9. Mark chapter 7, verse 9. 
Jesus said to these Pharisees, Full well ye reject the commandment of God, that ye may keep your own tradition. Now, who were these Pharisees? They were the doctors of the law. They were the most religious, at least outwardly, religious people of that day. They said, you've got to keep the law of Moses and all of this to be saved. What was Uriah? He was a priest, wasn't he? So he was very much like the Pharisees in the New Testament. Jesus said to those Pharisees, you've rejected God's commandment so that you can keep your own tradition. In other words, you have chosen to be completely obedient to men and disobedient to God, just like Uriah chose to be completely obedient to the king and disobedient to God. It's the same thing. To keep your own tradition, now this is good for us today, too. To keep your own tradition is to reject the commandment of God. That's it. If you're concerned about keeping your own tradition, then you'll reject the commandment of God. Our tradition should be the obedience of God's word that has been passed down to us from our parents who we if they would have been obedient and taught us to be obedient, and then we teach our children to be obedient, that's a great tradition, isn't it? But that's not the tradition of men. That is God's tradition passed down through us. Jesus kept God's tradition, didn't he? He never disobeyed the Father. He never displeased him. He never went against him, and he never doubted his authority or his ability. And that's the tradition we need to keep. Adam and Eve full well rejected the commandment of God, and they started their own tradition, didn't they? At least when it comes to man. So don't think that you can keep any tradition that is contrary to God's word and still be obedient to God's word. You can't have it two ways. You can't do that any more than you can serve two masters or be in two places at once. When a lost man full well rejects his own tradition and obeys the commandment of God concerning salvation, then that lost man becomes a Christian. And when that happens, his spiritual man rejects the traditions of men when it comes to how to be accepted by God. He's in Christ. He can no longer be lost. So his spiritual man, that part of him that is holy, holy, holy because of Jesus, rejects the commandments of men. That's why when a Christian sins, and that Christian, the, the Holy Spirit, through the witness of God's word, smites that Christian, smites your conscience, says you're wrong. That's why we have... That I hate to call it a feeling because we don't want to be basing things on feelings. We base them on truth. But that's why you have that, that sense, I've messed up. I am not right. What I just did is allow my flesh to yield to the tradition of men, and I know it's wrong. You know why? That's because your spiritual man doesn't reject the commandments of God. Your spiritual man rejects the commandments of men. Your flesh, this corrupt flesh we live in, is what wants to go by the traditions of man. That's where that conflict is. 
And that conflict is ongoing until that man dies. And when that, that Christian man dies and receives that new body, when Jesus gathers his elect, then no part of that man will ever again reject the commandments of God in favor of the traditions of men. Isn't that wonderful? And as we close, let's just summarize it by saying that Ahaz preferred the traditions of men when he beheld the altar of Damascus, when he sent the blueprint back to Uriah, when he had it built, when he finally ended up offering sacrifices upon it. And Uriah, like many preachers today, was all right with whatever Ahaz wanted because Ahaz was the king. And what a compliment it would be to Uriah for him to say, the king comes to my church. I'm his pastor. No, you're not. He's your boss. And that would appeal to others who honor the traditions of men like the king over the commandments of God. And by God's grace, we're not going to do that here. We'll pick up with verse 17 next week. Let's pray. Father, thank you for those who attended. Thank you for those who tuned in online. And we pray that the ministry of the word was beneficial to them today, that they will carry with it the truths of the doctrines of the Bible, and that each of us would know or be reassured that when we have a problem, when we have a dilemma like this king had, we go straight to God's word instead of poking around on the Internet and trying to find someone who gives us advice over the phone, that we just look at what the Bible says. And, Father, as Christians, that when someone comes to us with such an issue of life, even the most difficult ones, we'd open our Bibles and show them what it says because that's what they need. And we'll do that by your grace.